Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Hebrews chapter 10 in the first place. Hebrews 10, we'll read verses 1 through 25. The scripture readings are in connection with the Lord's Day that we will be looking at, Lord's Days 39, or excuse me, 29 to 30, the first part of Lord's Day 30, um, relating to the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Papal Mass. Uh, And so in connection with that, we'll read from several places in the New Testament, beginning in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, then, verses 1 to 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So far from Hebrews, now we'll turn back in in our New Testament to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and there we'll read verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So far from Romans 5, then we'll also turn to Romans chapter 8, and there we'll read just the verses 31 through 39. Romans 5 begins a section in uh, the book of Romans, and Romans 8 completes that section. Uh, so Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far, our reading of Scripture. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, our confession as a church and a summary of the Christian faith and we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 29 and 30. We'll be treating these two Lord's Days together. Lord's Days 29 and then the first part of Lord's Day 30. Both of these have to do with the differences between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. <clears throat> Lord's Day 29, question and answer 78. Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No, just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body, in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread His body, and the cup His blood, or the new covenant in His blood, and why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by His Supper 
that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so His crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, He wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in His true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of Him. And second, that all His suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for sins. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with His true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is, is where He wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless He is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last several weeks, we've been studying the sacraments of the Christian Church. And it would be good for us, uh, as we get into the sermon this afternoon, to take a moment to remember why we are doing that. Now, the goal for this study is that we would rightly understand what these sacraments mean and what Christ intended them for, so that we can better than appropriate them and benefit from them ourselves as we celebrate them here in this Christian church. Uh, So that's our our primary goal, to understand the sacraments in order to appreciate them and benefit from them. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we began this study uh, on the Lord's Supper in particular, uh, and we began in general terms asking the basic questions, what does the Lord's Supper mean, and then why also does it matter for the Christian life that we continue partaking in the Lord's Supper? Well, this afternoon, we want to look at a very specific question, and that's the question, what's the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass, the Roman Catholic Mass? Now, this is an important question today, since uh, probably still the single most common way of celebrating the Lord's Supper, if we're going to call it that, uh, the most common way is by the Mass. Uh, This is how most of our neighbors uh, or co-workers or colleagues would know the Lord's Supper. They would know it under the term of of the Roman Catholic Mass. Uh, And so if you were to tell one of your neighbors, well, we're we're celebrating Lord's Supper today, probably if they know anything about the Christian faith at all, they will probably envision you uh, going to something like they may remember from childhood uh, going forward to the Mass. And if you were to tell them, oh, no, 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 it's, it's not the same thing uh, as that, well, they might ask you, well, why? What's the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Mass? And, and it's for that reason we want to uh, think about this question this afternoon. 
Now, in doing this, I do want to answer one other objection that may be present, uh, which, which some might be wondering, which is, why do we have to talk about these areas where, where we disagree with, with other Christians? Why can't we uh, just agree to disagree uh, and focus on those areas where, where we do agree? Well, I want to answer that objection by saying, first of all, that the purpose of, of a sermon like this, and the reason this Lord's Day 2 is in the Catechism, is not to stoke up old disagreements, nor to pass judgment on others, nor to prevent us from living out the Christian life together with others. We do. Thank, thank, thanks to God, we do have many opportunities to serve alongside Roman Catholics, and that's something we should do eagerly and, and without objection. Uh, there are areas where we can truly agree, uh, and those opportunities are to be embraced. I think, for example, of the March for Life, uh, which, which happened recently, uh, where we can stand alongside our, uh, those who are Roman Catholics uh, and defend together with them the sanctity of, of the unborn. Uh, we think of the pregnancy center that we have here in Fergus uh, that some of us in our congregation serve in and oftentimes alongside Roman Catholics who share the same convictions about the unborn as, as we do. Uh, so, yeah, we can stand side by side. We can give thanks for those opportunities that we have and, and celebrate what we have in common. However, the Christian faith, and Roman Catholics would agree, the Christian faith is such that doctrine matters. The truth matters. The gospel matters. Uh, much of the scriptures, most of the New Testament, is devoted to defending and teaching the truth of the gospel and the doctrines that undergird that truth. That's just the nature of the gospel and the nature of the scriptures. Truth matters. Uh, those doctrines, uh, they are doctrines that show us God's grace, uh, and so that, that will affect our demeanor as we communicate these, these doctrines, uh, they should lead us to a gentleness, a, a graciousness as we work with others uh, who may disagree with us. Uh, but they never lead us to a disposition that says, I don't care uh, about differences in, in doctrine, or uh, a disposition that is unwilling to defend uh, the convictions that we hold. And that's the case here as well pertaining to the Lord's Supper. Uh, we read the Lord's Day a moment ago, uh, and, and it's clear that our confession says this is an issue that matters. Uh, this is an issue that's worth fighting for. Uh, it acknowledges that we are dealing here with, with fundamentally different views of not just the sacrament, but indeed different views of the gospel itself. Uh, and the Roman Catholics would agree with that. The Roman Catholic Church uh, even condemns, uh, in their words, in their language, they anathematize those who hold to the Reformed position. So they too would say, this, this matters a lot. Uh, so uh, as, as Christians, we need to be strong here. And we need to defend that which is worth defending. To stand for the gospel truth in the right time, in the right place, with the right and gracious disposition, while we also embrace opportunities to stand together. So then the question in front of us is, is the Lord's Supper and the, and the Roman Catholic Mass basically the same under a different name? 
And what we see is the Catechism breaks this discussion down into two separate points. One is this issue of what's called transubstantiation. It's the Roman Catholic belief that the bread and the wine literally turn into Christ's body and blood. Uh, That's one issue we want to deal with. And the the second is this issue of of a sacrifice. Is the Lord's Supper a sacrifice? Well, the first question then is this issue of transubstantiation. It might seem like maybe a side issue, not particularly relevant, but what we want to notice here is this is essential to the Roman Catholic understanding of what this sacrament is is, and what takes place in it. Uh, So the Roman Catholic view is that the bread and the wine literally, physically turn into the body, the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Uh, The moment those words of institution are spoken, and then they'll typically ring a bell, if you ever have seen a a Roman Catholic Mass, a a bell will be rung to signify the moment that, that the bread and the wine transform into the body of Christ. Uh, it's expressed this way in the Roman Catholic Catechism. I'll read this uh, there the way they would defend it. Uh, they say, The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His body that He was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again, that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church, has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. We can agree that this is something they clearly teach. Now again, this may seem like a bit of a quirk uh, in in Roman Catholic doctrine, and and we might wonder ourselves too, you know, how many of them truly believe that such a change really takes place? Uh, But this doctrine is essential to understanding the Roman Catholic view of the Mass, because as a result of this change, and here's the key point, as a result of this change, the bread and the wine are literally to be worshipped as Christ's physical body and blood. Uh, Again, the the Council of Trent states it this way, the only begotten Son of God is to be adored, that's another word for worship, uh, in the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist with the worship of Latria. Uh, That's that's the highest, uh, they have a system of different forms of worship, including reverence and and so forth. Uh, Latria is the worship that belongs to God alone. So it is to be worshipped, the Son of God is to be worshipped with the worship of Latria in the Holy Sacrament. Uh, The sacrament, therefore, is to be honoured with extraordinary festive celebrations and solemnly carried from place to place in processions according to the praiseworthy universal rite and custom of the Holy Church. The sacrament is to be publicly exposed for the people's adoration. Now, that already by itself is a huge difference between the Reformed view and and the Roman Catholic. We hold that the the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal uh, whereby we remember Christ's death and are assured of Christ's promise that we belong to Him. 
Uh, when we hear Jesus' words, this is my body, or this, this cup is my blood, uh, we understand the Lord Jesus is speaking there in, in sacramental language, as in this, this bread portrays or represents my body. It stands for my body. Uh, it's, it's just as when the New Testament calls Jesus the Lamb of God. The point is not that Jesus is a physical lamb. Uh, of course, uh, th- it is speaking in sacramental language. But it makes a tremendous difference, this, this difference of view, because according to the Roman Catholic view, once the bread and wine have become Christ's body and blood, they are literally to be worshipped as God. This is why the Catechism speaks in such strong language as it does when it speaks of the Mass as as an accursed idolatry. Now that might sound like very strong language. Perhaps it makes us uncomfortable, but it's simply addressing the facts of the case. If you are worshipping as God something that is not God, that is idolatry. In fact, uh, Peter Kreeft uh, is a uh, Roman Catholic scholar, a well-known defender of Roman Catholicism. And he says this uh, about the issue of transubstantiation. He says, If the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, they're referring to the transubstantiation, if that doctrine were not true, this adoration would be the most momentous idolatry, bowing to bread and worshiping wine. And if it is true, then to refuse to adore is equally monstrous. So these are the facts of the matter. We disagree about whether it is God we are, uh, whether the bread and wine are God and therefore to be worshipped. And it is either idolatry to worship them if they are not God, or it is a sin to not worship them if they are God. Uh, and this is why we hold to our assertion, even centuries later, uh, that the, what the Roman Catholic Church is doing is not right. And we take no pleasure or, or pride in saying that. Uh, but we say that earnestly with the hope that they would repent. In the days of the kings of Israel, one of the great sins of the northern kingdom, uh, the northern ten tribes, uh, was that they built for themselves these two golden calves, one at Dan, one at Bethel, by which to worship God. Uh, and they made it very clear, because their, their Jewish brothers from, from Judah had objections to this, saying, no, God is to be worshipped at the temple, uh, and what you're doing is idolatry. And, and the northern tribes would make it clear, no, 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 we are worshipping the true God. Uh, We're just doing it through these golden calves. Uh, And yet, for 800 years, one of the resounding themes in the book of Kings, uh, time after time, generation after generation, is they continued to worship at these golden calves, and they continued to worship at these high places. God continues to call it what it is, an accursed idolatry. Uh, our, our whatever reverence we have while doing so, and undoubtedly there, were, there was a, an element of reverence at such shrines, uh, whatever sincerity we have, whatever devotion we have, does not change what God calls it. So we must be strong here. We must listen to the Word of God and call it what it is. Uh, and that brings us to the second and, and related issue, which is the nature of the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice. 
Uh, Here, what we want to see is that the doctrine of transubstantiation radically changes what the Lord's Supper, or in this case, the Mass, actually is. Uh, This really is the heart of the difference, and this is why we would say these are not just two different versions of the same sacrament. They are two different ceremonies altogether. Uh, According to Roman Catholic doctrine, it is necessary that Christ be physically present in the body and uh, in his body in the bread and wine because the mass is not just a memorial meal but in their words it is an actual sacrificing of Christ for the forgiveness of sins again this is Christ's body you're dealing with here and it is being sacrificed for forgiveness of sins that needs to be obtained I listen again to the Council of Trent on this. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, that is the Mass, are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests, who then offered himself on the cross, only the manner of offering is different. So in other words, the the only difference between the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that happened 2,000 years ago in Judea uh, and the sacrifice of the Mass that happens in Roman Catholic churches throughout the world week by week, the only difference between these two events is the manner by which Christ is being sacrificed. You notice that in the presence, being sacrificed. Uh, Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that the Mass is necessary in order to bring about uh, the forgiveness of sins. It is to bring what happened 2,000 years ago to, to bring it into the present because otherwise our sins in the present could not be forgiven. Now here again, we as a Reformed Church would say that is a different gospel. That is a different gospel. Christ, uh, scripture tells us Christ died once for all, for the complete forgiveness of all the sins of those who belong to Him, thereby completely removing the judgment of God from us, both temporal and eternal. Uh, and has, uh, as we saw in, in Romans 5, has reconciled us to God. Uh, Hebrews 10 Verse 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Or in the words of Romans 5, verse 10, If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Or once again, Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We hold then, Christ died once, 2,000 years ago, and that one sacrifice has paid forever, for all time, uh, the sins, paid the price for our sins, and forever removed the judgment of God from us. Uh, we, We therefore need nothing to be reconciled to God. All that we need has been paid now, now, the Roman Catholic Church will, will uh, by some means, claim to agree with this. And they will argue uh, that they're, they say, we're not so much saying that the Lord's Supper or the Mass is a new sacrifice of sins. It's just a, a representation of that same sacrifice that takes what was once to happen 2,000 years ago. It takes it now into the present. 
but the problem still remains. It can be stated as a very simple question. Do we still, as believers in Christ, do we still have sins that need to be atoned for, that have not yet been atoned for by the blood of Christ? Do we live under the judgment of God, either temporal or eternal, or are we completely, fully, totally reconciled to God? Well, the joy of the Christian faith is that our sins are, uh, are forgiven. They are washed away in Christ once and for all. Uh, so the Council of, uh, of Trent calls the Mass uh, a key word, a key term, a propitiatory sacrifice. Meaning uh, that sacrifice in the Mass turns away God's wrath from us. And without it, the wrath of God has not been turned away from us. Uh, That means new forgiveness needs to be obtained through the Mass regularly for new sins that are committed. Well, we need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that's a different gospel. Uh, We need to be clear as Christians, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our gospel witness, that that doctrine is a denial of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And we don't say that. We don't say that because we're hasty to condemn. It's because we love the gospel and we love the peace that the gospel brings that every religion of works ultimately destroys. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will be quick to point to different passages in Scripture that, that do speak of, uh, of a sacrifice of some kind that will continue to be offered even in the New Testament age. Uh, for example, in Malachi chapter 1, Uh, God speaks about uh, the coming age and the new covenant age uh, and and says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Roman Catholics will, will, will take that and say, Look, even in the New Testament age, there's still an offering being presented to God. Now, for one thing, we should be careful with with any Old Testament text like this uh, because the Old Testament prophets always described the New Testament age in Old Testament terms. Uh, So, for example, in Micah 4, it says that in the future age, all the nations will go up to Jerusalem, to the mountain of, of the Lord. Well, we we recognize that prophecy is being fulfilled in our day, but it has nothing to do with the the physical city of of Jerusalem. It's the spread of the gospel throughout the world and the people coming to the God of of Jerusalem. So the New Testament, in in the Old Testament, the New Testament is described in Old Testament terms. And the same is true where it speaks of nations bringing tribute and nations bringing sacrifices. However, even with that being said, we would agree that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice in a different sense. Uh, For in the Old Testament, there was not only one form of of sacrifice. Uh, There were two large large categories of sacrifices. There were sacrifices for sin, guilt offerings, and there were also sacrifices of thanksgiving, thank offerings. Uh, and, and it's for this reason that in the New Testament, uh, the worship of the church is described as a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Now, obviously, when Paul writes that, he doesn't mean that our bodies are going to be an atoning sacrifice, but rather a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see the same when uh, the Philippians offered a gift to the Apostle Paul to support him while he was in prison. Uh, And he says, he says, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Well, in that sense, we can speak of the the Lord's Supper as, as a sacrifice of that category, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and worship. Uh, when, the, when the Roman Catholics point to the church fathers, you can find this, this language of sacrifice tied to the Lord's Supper uh, in the ancient church. You certainly do find it there. But when you ask, what was the understanding that existed then? Uh, the, they were talking about bringing forward, the rich in particular would bring forward a supply of bread and wine and donate it as a gift to the church. And that's where you find the language of sacrifice. Now, is that an atoning sacrifice, or is that a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Well, that's the idea of being prophesied here in Malachi 1. It's not a sacrifice for the atoning of sins. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, thank offerings pointed forward uh, in the Old Testament pointed forward to what the New Testament church and all of the nations gathered into the church would bring before God. And we offer that sacrifice of thanksgiving precisely because we have the joy of knowing that the other sacrifice, the guilt offering, has been offered for us. Our sins are atoned for and need no further atoning. Uh, We live our lives to God in thankfulness precisely because we know that we are reconciled to Him by the death of Christ. Uh, Peace has been made between us and God. Uh, You see this if you follow the flow of thought in the book of Romans as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier that chapter 5 through chapter 8 is a section in the book of Romans. Uh, And you see this exact same flow of thought. In the first four chapters of Romans, Paul talks about our guilt before God. Our, Our sin and guilt, how both Jews and Gentiles are under God's judgment, and how the only hope for their salvation is in the propitiation. There you find this language of propitiation that's offered in the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, That's chapters 1 to 4, saying this is the only way to salvation. Uh, But then chapter 5 begins a new section, which is all about how do we now live as a people who are reconciled to God? And that's where Paul writes Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of chapters 5 through 8 describe this is what life is now like when you have peace with God. Uh, And and, uh, that's how chapter 8 then ends with the words, And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, Then you'll see if you continue chapters 9 through 11, uh, deal with the question of what do you do then with God's promises to to Abraham, to the old covenant people, uh, in light of the fact that the Jews rejected Christ. Uh, And then finally, uh, chapters 12 to 16 began a new section there, which are all about the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, that's, That's the other sacrifice. Uh, And you see that in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. So there's our sin and our guilt and the atoning sacrifice for that sin. Then there is, we're at peace with God. And then there is, now therefore offer a sacrifice. But not that kind, the kind of thanksgiving. Uh, And he, he goes on to describe what that looks like in practice. It is the renewal of our minds, chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, It is serving one another in love. It is rejoicing in hope. Uh, It is being patient in tribulation or being constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, showing hospitality, returning good for evil, and so on. That's the sacrifice that the Old Testament uh, points forward to, saying this is what the nations will bring as tribute to God. So as we wrap this up then, we really want to remember what it is that we're fighting for. Not just who it is that we're fighting against, but what it is we're fighting for. It's not our purpose to stand in the throne of God, uh, or to sit in the throne of God to to condemn others. Uh, It is our purpose, though, to stand for the truth of the gospel today. Uh, And it matters that we have the courage and conviction to recognize where that gospel today is is being eroded, uh, and then fight for it. So let me close with just a few words of of application. Uh, In the first place, of course, let us make sure that we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we do so uh, for the purpose for which Christ has instituted it, namely in remembrance of Him, as a constant reminder of His grace to us, and as a constant assurance that we belong to Him and He to us. In the second place, let us indeed embrace every opportunity we have to build relationships with our Roman Catholic friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members, uh, and so forth, and to do so sincerely and without any malice in in our hearts. Uh, Though we detest the doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church teaches because it undermines the gospel, uh, we by no means hold any malice in our hearts to those who remain within that church. We urge them, rather, to separate from it for the sake of their own souls, and we urge the leaders of that church to repent of this error which compromises the preaching of the gospel. Now, our hope and our prayer is not the the eradication of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the reform of the Roman Catholic Church. Just as the Reformers' goal uh, during the days of the Reformation was never to, to separate from the Catholic Church or to start a new church, but to reform the Church of Christ. Well, that remains our goal. Now, we can thank God as well for, for many of those that we do know who belong to the Roman Catholic Church outwardly, but understand and believe the gospel a whole lot better than the way that their church teaches it. We give thanks for that. But we do pray that God would also impress it upon their hearts, uh, that what they practice when they go to Mass is not what Christ instituted. It's not the Lord's Supper, uh, but it is an idolatry uh, to to the danger of their very souls, uh, something that God condemns. And we don't throw that word around casually. We mean it with the the most earnest sincerity. Uh, And then finally, number three, For those of us who do have Roman Catholic friends, neighbors, colleagues, perhaps there is no greater witness to them uh, than to let them know 
the peace that we have with God and the love that we have for the God who has paid for our sins and reconciled us once for all to Christ. Uh, The love we have for our Father, whom we truly call on as Abba, Father, who does not condemn us, not even temporally in purgatory, but receives us into his care, uh, into his home, uh, into eternal life. Uh, The Father with whom we have perfect and undeserved peace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, The best witness to our Roman Catholic friends and neighbors is is the joyful song that comes from a heart that knows the forgiveness of God, that sings uh, with the Apostle Paul, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, That gospel brings a joy that no other gospel can bring. Amen.